Good morning, church. My name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview, and it's a joy for me to be able to open God's Word with us this morning. Um, if you are been around Parkview for the last couple of months, you know that as a church, we are in what we're referring to as a season of renewal. Um, our hope and our prayer over the next couple of months is very simple. We want the Lord to renew us as a church. Um, and as we consider what that looks like, there's a few things that we know are sort of non-negotiables. And so at the beginning of this year in January, we've kind of identified a series um, where we're going to explore sort of the images of renewal. If this renewal takes root in us as a church, a question should be, what does it look like? What does it look like? And so we've been trying to focus on certain images of renewal. We started off the series by looking at um, uh, one of the images of renewal is Jesus Christ and the sort of the center of focus that, that Jesus is and will be for us as a church as we move into whatever the Lord has called us to as a people. And we've also considered the need for confession, just as Aiden was talking about. As we look at the glory of who Jesus is, the next move for us is to consider the reality of who we are. And uh, when we do that, when we compare the two, we recognize that we fall short, right? And we need to confess our sins before the Lord. And confession is going to be a significant portion of just uh, how the Lord shapes us moving forward in the season of renewal. Last week, we looked specifically at Psalm 119. Pastor Dave walked us through and helped us consider the role that the Bible plays as we consider what it means to be renewed. And this week, um, with Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, my task is simply um, to consider doctrine. Doctrine. And so the title of this message is simply this, Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. And so would you pray with me real quick before we start our message this morning? Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for all of who you are and what you have done, Lord. As we consider just what you have brought us to this morning, um, what an awesome thing it is to be able to gather as your people um, in person or virtually and to be able to explore um, your word together. And more than anything, Lord, to be able to worship you for who you are and all that you have done. And I just pray that you would do that right now. I pray that this word would um, would help allow us to facilitate just the worship of you and your word, Lord. So we, we believe these words to be true, to be eternal, and our prayer this morning is simply that you would take them and that you would write them on our hearts, use them to shape us as the people that you have designed and called us to be. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, earlier this week, maybe it was last week, I don't remember exactly when, I was sitting at home in a chair reading a book. And uh, after sitting there for a few minutes, uh, my four-year-old daughter, Noelle, came in and she kind of nestled next to me on the couch and she uh, took out a notebook that she had and she had a notebook in one hand and a pen in the other. Notebook was a little unicorn notebook she got for Christmas, I think. It's a cute little, you know, sparkly, shiny notebook and she had her little pen there and, you know, I kept reading, doing, doing me and she was doing her and she was, you know, after a couple minutes I noticed there was, you know, scribbles on a page and then the page would turn rapidly and then she'd scribble some more things down. She's four, you know, so... You know, bear with me here. She scribbled some things down and turned again rapidly. And after going on for a couple of minutes, page after page after page, her notebook just filling up, my curiosity got the best of me. And I leaned over and I said, sweetie, what are you, what are you writing in your notebook? And her response was really adorable. Her response was, Papa, I'm writing my dreams. I'm writing my dreams in my notebook. And I thought, oh, that is just the cutest little thing in the world. She's writing her dreams. She is recording her dreams in her little unicorn journal. It was so sweet. Now, I, I don't fully know if she was writing like, like, like her hopes and her aspirations, you know, maybe. Or she was just documenting a record of like what she dreamed the night before. I'm not totally sure which one of those things she was doing. But what I do know is this. She was writing down... She was writing down things that could be. 
right? That maybe right now in this present moment don't define reality, but she was writing down things that could one day become not just a possibility, but a reality. She was writing them down. As we consider, like I said before, we're in a season of renewal. And as we consider this season, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I get excited Right? I get excited because really what we are trying to do collectively as a people is we're trying to dream about what could be. We are considering the God that we serve, the, the sort of situation that we're in as a church, and we're in this place where we can come together and we can dream together about what the Lord can do in and through us as a church. And for me, that gives me energy. That gives me excitement. Now, for some of us, I know that may not be the case. Right? For some of us, we want things well-defined. We want a, a certain degree of certainty as we consider about what does the next two, three, four, five years look like. But this really is the season of renewal. For us, it's an invitation to dream together and to consider how the Lord might use us as a people to bring hope and healing in our community, to make disciples, not just of Iowa City, but throughout the nations, to dream together about what it looks like for the Lord to renew us, breathe new life into us, and then use us to fulfill the mission he's assigned to us. It really is, in the life of this church, in the history of Parkview, it is an exciting time. It's an exciting time. We get to be a part of thinking and discerning what God's will is for us in 5, 10, 20 years down the road. And how he will use us as a people. And as we consider some of the message that we focused on, what we're trying to say is, listen, there are some things, whatever that dream looks like, whatever that vision looks like, there are certain things that are simply non-negotiables. Like you could take them to the bank, it's going to be a part of our dream. Okay? This week, with Romans 12, again, this message is titled, Doctrine Matters. The message... This week, in sort of a big idea that you can say, okay, what's the big idea of this text for us this morning? It's simply this. That as we dream about becoming a church that is shaped by the grace of God, that we would be a people who are committed to and who delight in the doctrines of God. For us to be a church that is shaped by the reality of the gospel, then we must give ourselves wholeheartedly to the delight of the doctrines of God. We must be a people who value doctrine. Said another way, as we discern what the Lord has for us, Parkview, in the coming years ahead, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. To look at these verses and to help make this point, I want to kind of go through three different movements. The first is this. I want us to consider collectively together this morning the relationship between doctrine and life. The, what is the relationship between doctrine and life? Look down at the text. Paul says in the letter of the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. If, I, if you're somebody who writes in your Bible, that's a line right there. I would under, underline by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. By the mercies of God. Paul is making his appeal to the church of Rome by the mercies of God. There's a transition that happens here in the letter to the church of Rome, in the, in the book of Romans, here in chapter 12. There's a significant transition. We see right away by noticing the word, therefore. 
What he's about to say, what he will say now for the rest of the book, really comes from what he has already articulated previously. And in this instance, not just referring to the verse that precedes it, but really the entire 11 chapters that lead up to Romans chapter 12. Everything that he wrote in the preceding chapters, he, because of those things, I mean, this is highly significant. Paul will build all that he's about to say in the next three and a half chapters on all that he has already said in the first 11 chapters. And if you were to sit down and read through those 11 chapters, read through the first 11 chapters of Romans, you will notice, likely, you will discover some of the amazing mysteries of God revealed wonderful truths of God expounded on, but you will also likely notice that there is something in those 11 chapters that is missing. Something is missing in those 11 chapters. What's missing is this, imperatives, commands, exhortations, things that you ought to do. You will discover amazing realities about who God is and what he has done, but you will also notice a striking lack of commands. In fact, if you read the 315 verses, only in six of those 315 verses, only six of them contain commands. And here's why. Because the focus of the first 11 chapters is not on what we should do. Paul's primary concern in those first 11 chapters is not on what we should do. Rather, the focus is on what God has done. And with quite amazing simplicity, Paul summarizes all of the amazing things that God has done with one simple phrase. By the mercies of God. These words are completely, be sure of it, loaded with meaning and refer to God's plan of salvation that he just laid out in those 11 chapters. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that is completely the work of God himself and is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The truth, this truth of the gospel, Paul turns now in chapter 12 and says this truth of the gospel, the doctrine, if you will, of the gospel is a reality that is not just live on paper conceptually, but it makes its way into our lives. It doesn't just appear on paper. It has real life, everyday implications, demands, and effects on the way that we live our lives, the way that you conduct yourselves. Our belief here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, Paul makes a... a, a a turn in the book to establish this reality that our belief shapes and determines our behavior. And there's no way around it. There's no way around it. What you believe gives shape to how you behave. Doctrine matters. Paul commands them that based on the doctrine of the gospel, they are now to take action. Specifically, what is that action here in 12 verses 1 and 2 is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So to summarize his point, in light of God's mercy, everything that God has done for you, what, are you, what ought you to do? Now give your bodies to God. In light of what God has done, here's now what you should do. Gospel truth demands gospel living. 
Epistemological realities of God give birth to the ethical realities of God's community. Right? What you believe shapes the way you live. Specifically here, the way you treat and view and what you do with your physical body. How you view this body should be shaped by what you believe to be true about God and what he's done. Now, one of the favorite disciplines is to study the early church. Um, if you study the early church, you'll notice, I mean, just the reason that we're here today, you know, being able to worship Jesus some 2,000 years after the early church was started is because, I mean, God really took that early church and just, it exploded on the scene of the ancient Near East. Just rapid explosive growth the early church was known for. And it's, it's really interesting when you, just, when you study the early church to consider the factors and now, how did that happen? And, or maybe how it didn't happen. It didn't happen through uh, military force or through political power. When, when Francis Schaeffer talks about the growth of the early church, listen to how he explains it. One cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. In the midst of the visible church, a community which the world can see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be, he says, it must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Parkview, let this be what describes us in the years ahead. A church that is known not just for our beliefs, but for our ability to take what we believe to be true and let that be what guides and shapes and orders our lives. The way that we live in community together. The way that we treat one another. Our doctrine and our life, are, you, can't, you can't separate the two of them. The question, though, is, if that's true, the question is, do we have right theology? Do we have true doctrine? And that brings me to my second point. The necessity of sound doctrine. Look at verse 2 as he goes on. He says, do not be conformed to this world. The, the alternative of being shaped into the image of this world, and, and really the age is what he's referring to. Don't be conformed to this age but be transformed. The alternative is to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. It, because the truth is our lives, our, our belief and our behavior are interwoven together, are deeply connected to one another, we must be a people who give ourselves to sound doctrine, to doctrine that is true, that is right. Bobby Jameson in his book simply entitled Sound Doctrine defines doctrine as this. A summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible, it is true, and is useful for life. It is deeply connected to the way that we behave and operate in society. Now there's likely many of us that are here this morning, maybe watching online, and maybe not totally convinced. See the value of the Bible? Maybe you have you know, a, a devotional or you have a habit of getting in the Word occasionally. Um, you come here on Sunday morning and you expect to read the Bible. You expect it to be preached from and, and sung and even prayed. Um, you expect it to be a central part of the worship service. You, you definitely see the value. You have a basic, maybe, understanding of Scripture. But the last thing you would consider yourself to be, maybe, is a theologian. Somebody who really dives deep into the Word of God. Maybe. 
Maybe you would say, this is, listen, that's not really for me. That's for people who are in ministry. That's for people who are paid by the church to do that. Like, you know, that's your job, not necessarily mine. But, but here's the deal. Doctrine is really unavoidable. It, it's totally unavoidable. Non-doctrinal Christianity, in fact, arguing that you can have a Christianity without doctrine is an impossibility. It just simply is. In fact, if you're sitting here thinking, you know, this is really good for you, but not so much for me. It's not, I don't see, I'm not convinced of the need for doctrine to really rise to the surface as we consider our church being renewed. I would say that's a doctrinal position. That what you just articulated, what you are struggling to believe is based on a set of assumptions, a set of beliefs that you ascribe to. The real question is not if we will have doctrine. The real question is whose doctrine or which doctrine we believe. And what we are after as a church should always be sound doctrine, true doctrine. This is, I mean, Jesus himself came and taught that there is a right way to think about God. That there is a right way to think about our humanity, to think about ourselves. There's a right and proper way to think about creation, to think about sin and redemption and, and the church and the end of all things. There is a proper way to think about these things. Jesus himself laid it out and said, listen, there will be some who will reject this. This will likely bring division. But he clearly articulated that there is a right way to view himself and what we want as a church is to give ourselves to discerning to knowing to embracing sound doctrine consider with me if you will a quick illustration that i found helpful imagine frank frank's a mechanic but he's an unusual mechanic not your typical mechanic where other mechanics would find natural laws such as gravity unavoidable and even useful in their job, he suspects those laws are arbitrary. Obstacles which really sort of hinder his creativity. You can imagine how this would go for Frank and his clients, right? His customers. Vehicles would be brought for repair and returned in worse shape than before. Frank eventually is going to go out of business. Whatever Frank might think, the laws of physics are built into the nature of creation. They're unavoidable. So it is with doctrine in the Christian faith and life. Believing that it is unnecessary or not important would have us looking like Frank the mechanic. And we don't want to look like Frank the mechanic. I don't want to look like that. We don't want to be a church that rejects that. If the relationship between doctrine and life is unavoidable, then on some level, church, brothers and sisters, we are all and must be all theologians. We all must give ourselves, commit ourselves to understanding and to delighting in the things of God. And what we really believe must give shape to how we really live. And the truth is, we do it every day. I can think of a couple years ago, I was parked at a uh, stoplight, and there's a car ahead of me. And in the middle of traffic, the door flung open, and out came two bags of McDonald's 
like wrappers, food, right? The person was there just like opened the door, middle of traffic, just flung out the McDonald's, you know, wrappers, disposed of it right in the middle of the street. Green, light turned green, they just drove off, right? I was like, whoa, it's like that, huh? Okay, you know, but in that moment, like that behavior came from a particular understanding, a particular belief on how that individual views creation, the world, a belief and and how that person understands their responsibility as a human being that lives in this world. Like they were demonstrating their beliefs in that moment. They had a particular doctrine that, that, that fueled and gave shape to how they dealt with their trash, right? And, and the truth is, we as a people are constantly making decisions that, is, that are always based on what our belief system is, the doctrines that we ascribe to, the way that we view our body, the way that we view ourselves. It's the direct application here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The way we view ourselves, the way we treat our bodies, the way we look at our bodies, it's determined by our belief system, what we believe to be true about our humanity. The way we appreciate the physical world is determined, shaped by our doctrine of creation, right? Understanding of its role in history and time. Our participation, folks, in the political process, or maybe lack thereof participation, is the direct result of our belief in what the Bible says we should and should not do. Now, some of us, the problem is, don't know what to do because we've never, we've never looked in the text and said, what does the Bible tell me to do? What does God's vision for how I participate in the political process, what does that look like? We have a doctrine regardless of what our participation looks like. The way we view the unborn, the, the way we defend the unborn or choose not to defend the unborn is rooted in our fundamental understanding of the dignity of humanity, of the value of human life. The way we choose to fight for justice or sit back on our heels and wait for it to just happen. The way we choose to extend compassion or reserve and keep it for ourselves. These decisions are, are based on our beliefs. Okay, The way we view our neighbor. The way we view our neighbor who looks different than us. Who votes different than us. Who dresses, speaks different from us. The way we treat that individual is based on what we believe to be true about that individual. And what we want, like I said before, is sound doctrine, right doctrine, so that we can make sure that the way we treat our neighbor is how we ought to treat our neighbor. Whether or not we share Jesus with anybody is rooted fundamentally in what we believe to be true about the gift of salvation and the value of that person's life, the reality of eternity. Whether or not we share Christ with others, really, it's a doctrinal issue. Do we really believe that person needs to hear Jesus? Do we really believe the person, um, what would happen to that person if they don't receive Jesus? Like These are doctrinal issues that shape and inform virtually how every decision that we make. How we live our lives. The alternative, Paul says, to being conformed to this age is to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. So how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, first thing is we have to understand the transformation of our mind is a supernatural event. It's a supernatural thing. 
okay? Our minds have already been changed. If we're in Christ, our minds have been trained, changed. They've been transformed at conversion. They are now set, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 5, on things of the Spirit. At conversion, God gives us a new mind. He, he transforms our identity. He gives us a new appetite, new set of desires. In our deepest, innermost self, we delight, according to Romans 7, 22, in, in the law of God. At our deepest level, at a truer self, we are no longer rebels against God, but we are recipients of his grace. That's who we really are if we're in Christ, recipients of God's grace. And God has done that. Our transformation is the result of his intervention, his divine grace at work on and in us. It's a supernatural event, transformation of our minds. But the second thing that's important is not just is it a supernatural event, it's also a continual, ongoing thing, the renewing of our minds. We need to bring our thinking and our behavior in line with the new minds we've received from Christ. That's why Paul says be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Tim Keller is helpful. He says it like this. The key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. The discovery of a new implication or application of the gospel, seeing more of its truth, is an important stage of any renewal. And so as a church, we are going to be people who don't just read Romans chapter 1 through 11 and then move on to the next thing, right? We, we don't just start our Bible reading plan, finish it one year, and then it's like, check that box. We are a people who come back time and time and time again to the things of God, the things made clear about God in Scripture. We return to them continually, rediscovering them, reapplying them over and over again. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 can say, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of the law. That ought to be our prayer every single time we open the Bible. God, open my eyes. Help me see what's here. Help me know how to apply it. Let it shape and form me into who I am, who you designed me to be. Open my eyes. So the relationship between doctrine and life, those two things are connected. You can't separate them. So as a result, we want to be a people who give ourselves to sound, true, right doctrine. Thirdly, what I want to do is I just want to consider briefly with us this morning the practice of doctrine. What does this look like? What does it look like? Too often we create, and I don't know if you're guilty of this, I know I certainly am tempted towards this, to create neat little categories in our lives. We draw lines in our lives and we designate this particular area as religious, maybe, or sacred, you might say. Well, the other areas, maybe we get to do what we want, right? And so our lives or our weeks are divided up into certain segments. And, and maybe sometimes the way we approach the Bible is that the Bible speaks to, to how I spend my time here or what I think about here. But there's other segments that are largely untouched by God's word. Well, as we saw last week, there are wondrous things in this book and our hope is that, that we, as the psalmist writes that in Psalm 119, he's, he's not riveted by words that only speak to one segment of his life or one day of his week, right? Rather, he has discovered a whole new lens by which he now views all of his life. His entire life is now viewed through this book. In Scripture, there is no... There's no divorce between doctrine and practice. They're held together. So we want to practice 
We want to believe right doctrine, so our practice is in line with that. True doctrine is never merely a theory that lives on paper. It's not simply conceptual. Rather, it has legs. It takes shape in the context of our life. That's why in 1 Timothy 1, Paul lists a series of gross sins and categorizes them as contrary to sound doctrine. All of these Sins that, are, that he lists off, he says they are contrary to, to sound, right, true teaching of the Bible. So our morality then, as a result, finds its footing on sound Christian teaching. Now we must also recognize that good doctrine, as much as it matters, it, it matters, but it's not magic. Okay? It's possible it's possible, and all you have to do is just glance throughout history, and you can see what happens when this takes place. But it's possible for someone to profess sound doctrine, and yet to live lives that are not in line with the truth that they profess. We have a word for that, right? I believe this to be true, but then when I look at that person's life, I'm like... That is not reflected in their decisions. It's not reflected in their language. It's not reflected in their relationships. It's not reflected in the way they treat the poor. They may believe this, but it certainly doesn't look like it in their lives. The word we use for that is hypocrisy, right? We would call that, a, a, that person a hypocrite. This is what I believe, but their practice doesn't line up with it. At the same time, it's possible to, to, to maybe try to live to a certain moral standard but to completely reject sound, true doctrine. And what we would call that is inconsistency, fragility, right? Who knows what tomorrow might bring? You might change at any given time. So that neither one of those paths are paths we want. Neither scripture nor history would commend us on either one of those. And we certainly want to avoid them as a church. What we want is to be a church of sound doctrine that, gives, that shapes and molds us into a church of grace. What does that look like? Let me give you an example. How do you take sound doctrine and how does it impact the way you live your life? Let's just consider for a moment, and this is, I would say, a current need in our church and in our community, how sound doctrine speaks to unity. How does sound doctrine, if I want, if I can look out at the world right now and I can see division after division, one group of people, I mean, groups of people just seem to be from one year after the next, getting further and further and further apart, right? And right now, we just see this runs deep in our nation. Division. Socially divided, politically divided, economically divided, racially. On and on we could go. We are divided, and the distance from us gets getting wider and wider and wider. In recent years, racism itself has been legislated against and has even been stigmatized. Yet... A simple glance around our world and you know that it persists today. That it is alive and well. What do we do? Now, if we have any familiarity with the Bible, you know that the church is supposed to offer an alternative to the division and chaos out there. The church is supposed to look different the beautiful thing about the church is that we're a people who come from different backgrounds, but we are united by something that is far more powerful than the categories that divide us, right? There's something that unites us which transcends all of that stuff. 
Look at just a couple verses. Paul directs, speaks directly to it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When, when he confronts them in their racial pride, he says, hold up a second. Let it not be in the church. Colossians 3, 11. Again, Paul says, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul recognizes racial divisions that are happening in the church, and he confronts them, okay? We are supposed to be a united people. We're supposed to be one people. In Galatians, Paul directly confronts the division and racial pride that existed in that church. The church was relying on circumcision, observance to the law for their salvation. As a result, the ethnic Jews, or the law-following converts to Judaism, could claim superiority over the Gentile believers. So what was happening in the church was there was one group elevating themselves above another group. When Paul confronts specifically the racial pride that he sees in Peter in the book of Galatians... Listen to what he says. He says, I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. They had separated their doctrine from their lives. And it was a hot mess in their church. As a result, sin crept in. Divisions wide. Superiority one group over the other. Their doctrine was not shaping their practice. So what does Paul do to push against this? What Paul does is he doesn't just cite a verse. And oftentimes, just be honest, if we don't have a deep understanding of doctrine, that will be our temptation. Well, I know there's a verse here and there that kind of... Uh, what Paul does is he gives them a treatise on justification, on the doctrine of justification. He does it here in Romans for us, and he does it in Galatians when he, when he bucks up against racial pride. He, he says this is not in step with the doctrine of justification, which teaches us that we're justified. We are declared righteous by God, by grace, through faith, full stop. That he pardons our sin, clothes us, imputes the very righteousness of God now on us, not because of a degree that we hold, not because of a career or a position in society that we have, not because of the color of our skin, not because of the part of town that we live in, but because of God's grace and through our faith. That's how we're justified. Understanding, listen, our acceptance by God and membership into the family of God. We have to have this one down pat, people. Our justification, our acceptance by God into the family of God is possible by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Understanding that doctrine. Understanding that reality. Leaves zero room for ethnic supremacy. For social snobbery. Or for chauvinistic superiority. No room. Why? Because of the doctrine of justification. It is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the grace of God. Folks, this gospel is something that as followers of Jesus, we have to be fluent in. We, we use these doctrines to protect us 
as a people from, from, from being, as Paul says here in Romans chapter 12, conformed to the world around us. Right? We don't need, there's a lot of talk out there about, and I don't want to get into it, I'm, I'm not going to, but, but critical race theory. I mean, there's lots of discussion over the use for that, okay, whatever. But listen, as followers of Jesus with this book, I mean, we have really everything we need to, to have to say, no thanks, not here. It's right here. So we give ourselves to the doctrine that God has laid out clearly in his, in his Bible. The, one, one author says, the unity of the church is founded on and flows from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I mean, folks, we have to be people who lean into doctrine who don't reject it and say, ah, just, I'm not a theologian. I don't see how it matters. We must be a church that provides an alternative. And this is the great news, is he's designed it this way. He's designed us to be a part of a church. If we're going to give ourselves a sound doctrine, yes, there will be people who will not want anything to do with it. But at the same time, we get to offer a compelling alternative to the mess of the world. Now, it's not easy. It doesn't mean we just step in and suddenly, poof, I don't have any sin to deal with, or I don't have any prejudices to work through, or I don't have any preconceived notions that i got to set aside. I mean, we, we lean into it together. And it's messy, and it takes time. But do you know what else it is? It is beautiful. It's beautiful. And I don't know about you, but I look on the news, I'm just like, thank God there's another way. Thank God there's another way. So Paul exhorts here the church at Rome that they be a church which is shaped and formed by the mercies of God. Parkview, let this be our dream as well. Let us, let's, let's not give this one up. Let us commit to be in a church, whatever it looks like 10, 15, 20 years down the road. There are certainties ahead of us, you bet. But one thing that cannot be uncertain is our commitment to and our delight in sound biblical doctrine. That can't be, that, we can't negotiate on that one. If we want to be a remarkable, compelling community that is transformed by the renewal of our mind, then that's what we're going to do. Commit ourselves to delighting in sound doctrine. So how does that look? Um, just in closing, here's an example. An example would be Sunday mornings. When we walk in here on a Sunday morning, our expectations, I, I, I think if, you know, just honestly, my expectations can be when I walk in here on a Sunday morning, often to be thinking about sort of my preferences. Sometimes I can, I, I want what happens up here. I can be tempted to want to be entertained you know and, and Sunday mornings as we come together what God's call us to is so much more meaningful than entertainment right Sunday mornings we should come with an expectation to be reminded of what we know to be true that sound doctrine will be taught that sound doctrine will be prayed that sound doctrine will be practiced that sound doctrine will be read and sung. 
Sunday mornings, I mean, sound doctrine should give shape to everything we do on Sunday mornings. Another maybe practical thing you could do, whether you, you know, are in a family, spouse, friend, roommate, whatever, find somebody else. I would encourage you to go to Parkview Church's website. And what I just did with sound doctrine and unity showed how doctrine of justification gives shape to how we live together in community. Um, I would encourage you to go to the website, and underneath the About tab, you'll find a statement of faith. If you've been through the new members course, um, you've, you've likely seen that. And I'll confess, oftentimes I can be like, yep, 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 check the box, sign the thing, whatever. Okay, yeah, I'm there. I want to encourage you not to do that, right? What I want to encourage you to do is click on the About tab, look at the statement of faith, and you'll just see simple doctrinal statements. What do we believe to be true about God, about who Jesus is, about the Holy Spirit, about us as humans and sin in the church? And the end of times. What do, we be true, what do we believe to be true about that? Those are doctrinal, confessional statements. What I would encourage you to do with somebody else is to, to take maybe one statement at a time, just occasionally, every now and again, take one statement, say, okay, what is true about God? Do I agree with what this says? Is this enough? Are there other things? And then the next question is, what does it look like? If I really believe this to be true about Jesus Christ, what does that mean it looks like when I navigate the halls of City High School? If I really believe this to be true about God, what does it look like as I pull into my house and see my neighbor in the front yard? How does it give shape to the way that I live my life? How, how does it shape the way I treat my spouse? How does it shape the way that I, that I live with my roommate? How does it shape the way that I raise my kids? Go through those doctrinal statements, and they're not just, they don't just exist to live on paper right? Yes, they bring alignment to us in unity. They promote that. But at the same time, they're supposed to be lived out in the context of our lives. So that would just be one practical thing you can do, okay? When it's all said and done, if you remember two words from this message, I really hope you remember two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. But if you just remember two words, let it be these two words, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to just look at your word this morning together as your people. Lord, I do really pray that you would help us to be a church that is truly transformed and renewed, Lord, by the renewal of our mind and that we are a church that is shaped by the mercies of God. That we would give ourselves to understanding those mercies, to understanding and exploring the doctrines of God. Lord, that we would be fluent and be able to articulate what we believe to be true. Lord, but even more than that, Lord, we just pray that you would take those truths. Lord, please, please, please help them to shape the way we live our lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen.